Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples weekly sermon podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful morning, Lord, for this beautiful uh, time of worship that we've just enjoyed. Lord, making a joyful noise to you, Lord, I pray that it was a blessing to your heart. Lord, I ask that now in this time that you would take this time right now and you would take these words, Lord, and you would use me as a, as a tool, like Kevin's guitar, Lord, in the hands of a, of a master, Lord, that you would make a masterpiece this morning, Lord. I've got, I've got nothing, actually, Lord, but I've got my faith in you. So, Lord, as we open up your word today, I pray that you would use this time to glorify yourself, Lord, and to draw us closer to you. Lord, we thank you, and in your name we pray, amen. 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 Well, we're still in Galatians chapter 3. I know we were there last week, but it's just so good. There's so much good stuff in there. I was constantly reminded this week, and maybe this isn't a great thing to say, that Paul addressed them as foolish Galatians because they were lured away by an appeal to their vanity. Remember last week it says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And this idea, bewitched means that they were lured away and by an appeal made to their own vanity. Not scared away, not fooled into believing something else, but lured away by an appeal to their vanity saying, hey, you know what, that whole Jesus thing, that's great, but you need to be a part of this too and shouldn't you be because you're pretty awesome. Really? <laughs> it's like, remember how I, I told you about that article I read in the uh, Saskatchewan uh, Sheep Development Board? That's a thing. That's a real thing. I mean, imagine that's your job, that you work for the Saskatchewan Sheep Development Board. Well, there was that article about understanding sheep behavior, and one of the things they said is that sheep are easily distracted, right? You know that Jesus refers to us as sheep on a regular basis. You guys easily distracted? In your faith walk, in your walk with Jesus, is there a shiny object that grabs your attention? And you go towards the shiny object, you're distracted by this shiny object, and the closer you get, you get closer to it and closer to it. And actually what you realize is that shiny object is a mirror, and you're looking at your own reflection. And right in that moment, you have a choice. You can say, oh, woo, and turn away from that and go back to just following Jesus. Or you can look in the mirror and be like, hmm, that's not bad. That's not bad. Maybe I do have something to offer. Maybe I do have something to offer Jesus in partnership in my own salvation. And that's what's going on right here in Galatians. And Paul is writing them saying, well, I was there. I was there when I preached the word to you. I was there when you believed in faith in Jesus Christ. What has happened that you've gone, that you've been, and you know what? It's kind of a rhetorical question when he's saying, what has happened? Who has bewitched you? He knows who and he knows exactly what's happened. And so he's going to kind of walk them through. Don't you remember faith? Don't you remember when we talked about God who does miracles? Does he do them because you've earned them through your works? Of course he doesn't. And you know this. (laughs) 
It, it, actually, do you see, look, look at verse 6. We cover, we're, we're almost, I'm almost ready to start, so just go with me. Just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him at righteousness. You see, do you see what Paul does right here? He quotes Genesis to these people. The story of Abraham, God coming to say, Abraham believed God, and so it was accounted to him righteousness. And Paul quotes Genesis in refuting those Judaizers who were coming in and saying, it's Jesus and the keeping of the law. But isn't it so clever? Because who wrote this part of Genesis? Moses. Moses was the law to the Jews. He brought the law. And so Paul says, the one who you are saying brought the law is the one who actually wrote that Abraham was saved through faith. And they're just like, well, we don't, we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> he says, therefore, Know that only those who are faith are sons of Abraham. Remember, he kind of throws in that little, you know, you all claim, all you Judaizers, you Jews, you claim to be descendants of Abraham, and that's a, like, that, like that's a thing that you can cling to. But the Bible's going to say in more than one place, it doesn't matter that you're descended from Abraham. It's that, it, do you have faith in Jesus? Look, it says at verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. There's a couple of interesting things right there. Paul actually refers to, and the scripture, comma, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, preached the gospel. It is like he is referring to the scripture as a person, isn't it? If you look at it there, it says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God. First of all, he's saying God knew that faith was going to be the plan from the beginning, not the law. He's going to say the law didn't come until like over 400 years later. Faith was the way to God, and Abraham had faith, and that's why it was counted to him, accounted to him righteousness. But he says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham. And it is almost like, and maybe not, but almost like he's saying the scripture, the word of God, and who is the word of God according to the Bible? Yes, Jesus. Isn't that cool? It's like, you know that Jesus was there from the beginning. I mean, maybe you don't. If you, if you think that Jesus was born at, you know, Christmas time, and that was the beginning of Jesus, that's not right. That was his arrival in human form at the earth, but Jesus has been since the very beginning. If you don't believe me, check out Colossians. It'll let you know that everything was created by him and through him and for him. So that means from the very beginning, Jesus has always existed. So it is if Paul is saying, and Jesus, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham. Jeez. <clears throat> and actually, at the end of verse 8, in you all nations shall be blessed. He, guess what he does again? He quotes Moses again out of Genesis. So he goes back again to the giver of the law, and he says, also, by the way, Moses said this about faith in Abraham as well. So he just keeps reminding them that it was the plan of God, faith, from the beginning. It wasn't like, wow, they didn't, uh, darn, they didn't keep the law. Now I've got to do something else. I guess I better send in my son and fix this whole situation. So that wasn't the plan. It wasn't like Jesus was plan B. Jesus was plan A from the very beginning. 
So then who are of faith, in verse 9, are blessed with believing Abraham? For as many are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, curse is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Well, first of all, what he's saying is, um, okay, if you want to say that you're under the law and that's how you keep faith, you're going to be under the law, then you have to do and keep all of them all the time forever. And if you transverse one, one time, you're guilty of all of it. You're under the curse. That's what he says. Anyone who's under the law is under the curse because with the law comes a curse because you cannot keep the law. And he says, though cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And he's quoting what? The Old Testament again, Deuteronomy. I'm going to just turn there. Deuteronomy 21, 23. Uh, 22 and 23. It says, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, he is to be put to death and you hang him on a tree. And so, you know, at this time when this was written in Deuteronomy, there wasn't, they weren't practicing crucifixion. By the way, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. They just perfected it. But at this time, when he wrote this, they weren't talking necessarily about crucifixion. But what would happen is if somebody did something horrible in their culture, they would actually stone that person. That's how they would execute them. But then to further uh, disgrace them, they would hang their body out in public for everyone to see their dead body hanging from a tree. But it says in verse 23, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land in which your Lord God is giving you as an inheritance for he who is hanged is accursed by God. Remember, Paul is going to be pointing to Jesus throughout this whole thing he already has. Now, we actually know that Jesus was, as Paul's going to say, hung on a tree. And we know that tree to be the cross, a wooden cross that Jesus was hung on. And Jesus says, you know what? Um, so that you don't have to be under the curse of the law because you're sinful, I will take on all of your sin and I will go to the cross on your behalf and I will suffer the curse of the law on me because I can handle it. You know what's really interesting? When Jesus was crucified, you know what they would do is they would leave you on that cross for like days, days. And let the birds come and pack away after you're dead and leave your body there. But what do we know about the crucifixion? We know that before the day was ended, they came and they took Jesus' body down because, and maybe they didn't know this, but God is in control here. He says, it, when that happens, when you hang the man on a tree, don't leave him there overnight. Bring him down and bury him so that the ground is not defiled. They took Jesus off the cross before the end of the day. What does that tell you? Who's in control of all of this? God. God is still, what do we say? God is still on the throne. Amen? God is still on the throne. It looks like to everyone around that Jesus was beaten, even at that point. But God says, no, I will not let my son remain on the cross and be defiled. No, he comes down and he gets buried just as I instructed in Deuteronomy. Of course, we know he didn't stay there either, did he? A couple of days and then, bam, the rock is blown away, and Jesus strolls on out. The angels are there. The soldiers fall down like they're dead men, fainting. What a sight that must have been. What a sight that must have been to hear. The rock, you know, it says that it was rolled away, 
but in the original language, it's like the rock was flown away, like flung right out of the way, and it was all sealed up and tied. And imagine you're a Roman soldier, and you're sitting there all night long, and all of a sudden there's a rumble, and the rock goes flying, and then there's angels all over the place, and what would you do? I'd run away. I'm sure I'd run away. But these guys fainted dead. Not dead, but fainted. And Jesus comes out of the tomb. Whew. That's pretty cool. Well, these guys maybe are hearing us saying, like, well, aren't we supposed to do good? What are we supposed to do? And James, remember it says in James 2.10, whoever keeps the law, again, this is, re, this is kind of uh, reiterating this, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles just in one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So my question is, if you feel like you need to do good works as well as believe in Jesus because that's how you become righteous, how much good works do you need to do? How much good works are enough good works? Here's the answer. All of them, all the time. All good works, all the time, never failing in one point ever, or else you're guilty. <laughs> hey, good news, though. Jesus said, you really just need me. You just need me. In fact, if you add to me, you take away from me. If you add to me, you take away from me. So what are we supposed to do? Well, I love this verse in Micah 6.8. He has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Love that. <clears throat> but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And not only does he quote Moses in Genesis, he busts out Habakkuk right here. Habakkuk. I'm, I'm, some of those guys may be like, <laughs> but you know what? They're so pious, they're just like, oh yeah, Habakkuk. Mm -hmm. hmm. <laughs> Habakkuk, he says, the just shall live by faith. In fact, it says, behold, this is the whole, the whole verse. Behold, behold the proud. His soul is not upright within him, but the just shall live by faith. Behold the proud, he says. Right? Isn't that vanity? Isn't that what we're talking about? Wasn't that the lure? Vanity? Look at the, look, he says, look around you. Look at those who are prideful. Their soul is not right within them, but the just shall live by faith. Yet the, the law is not of faith. The law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So what does that say? What do you have to do? Can you just believe in the law? No, you have to do the law or else you're guilty of the law if that's what you're going by. If, that's, if, the, if you're saying, well, it's Jesus and the law or you know, just my good works. You don't have enough good works. You don't have enough time to do enough good works between now and whenever you pass or the Lord comes back, which, by the way, could be tomorrow or today or right the second. I'm going to say that every week, and one day that's going to be true. <laughs> Verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ became the curse for us because we could not do it. 
I'm thankful for that. Are you thankful for that? Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Yes, all right. Look at me. I'm gripping the podium. It's because it's in the middle today. That's why I'm like, (laughs) I got to step away. (laughs) That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it, is the, uh, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. Here's, it's like what Paul is saying right here is like, you know, let me give you an example. Well, we do this all the time. Well, I'll give you an example, and I'm going to do it several more times today. Contemporary examples to help you understand what this is saying. Well, Paul is doing that exact same thing he's right now. He's like, you know what? Let me give you a, a, an example from, from our own experience. He goes, when, we, when, when two men have an agreement or a contract, if it's established to be real, it can't be annulled and it can't be changed. That is what he's saying right there. Now, to Abraham, and his, uh, it says, yet if it's confirmed, no one annuls it and no one adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as to many, but as one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And Paul's doing all my work for me right there. He's just breaking it down for me. He does exactly what we do. And he says, you see here where he says seed, he doesn't actually mean all of his descendants. He means the one that would come through his line, the Messiah, who would be the one who would be able to take on the curse, the one, Jesus. But I don't have to explain it because Paul says it right there. Not seeds, not the descendants of Abraham, but the one who would come through Abraham Jesus Christ, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God and Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. And he says the promise that God made with Abraham is not annulled or changed by the promise that or the covenant that God made with Moses 430-something, whatever it says there, years later. One does not annul or change the original one. That original promise that God made to Abraham is still in place at this time when he's writing. It isn't changed. It is the promise of faith. It hasn't changed. It hasn't been added to. It's not works and For the inheritance is of the law. It is no longer if the inheritance is of the law is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. You see, he's just backing up. He's saying like, if the law was involved in this, it was no longer a promise of faith, and that means it would have been changed, and it's not changed. No one can change. If you can't change a contract that's put together by men, how can you change or annul a contract that's given directly by God? The answer is, you cannot. You shouldn't. Doesn't work. Let's see. What purpose then does the law serve? So you know, you know, I'm sure Paul is sitting there saying, "Okay, well, they know me. You know, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. I upheld the law. I held. Up, I probably held upheld the law more so than anybody else out there. I'm. I was Saul of Tarsus. The the the, the destroyer of the Christian church, the one who dragged people off to prison. Um, and here I am, now, now they're thinking, well, Paul, Paul must hate the law now. 
He must think that the law is bad. It doesn't serve any purpose. But he says, that, what purpose does then the law serve? He says, it was added because of transgression till the seed should come to those who the promise was made. He says, the law came about to show you that you were transgressing. It was there to show you what you were doing. Let me give you an example. You're driving down a remote road. There's a few of them in this area. There's no speed limit signs anywhere. You don't know what speed you're supposed to be going. You, I mean, you're driving for miles, and there's no, you know, some roads are 35, some are 40, some are 55, some are 70. You're driving down. You don't know what speed you're supposed to go because there's no sign there. You're just driving along, and, and you're all by yourself, and there's no cars around you, and so you can't gauge your speed even like, well, they're going 40, so I guess I could go 40 or whatever it is. You have no idea. You're just going along. Then all of a sudden, you see a sign, 40 miles an hour. And for some of you, it's like this. <laughs> but you realize you're going 70 on a 40-mile-an-hour road. Now, all of a sudden, you are aware, because of that sign, that you are transgressing the law, right? Now you know what you're doing. Now you have a choice. Do I slow down to 40? Yes. Do I slow down to 49? Because I've heard you can get away with nine miles an hour. <laughs> or do you just keep on going 70 and be like, ah, there's nobody around. No one can see me going 70. Who really cares? Right? And Paul says the law is to show you that you've transgressed. In fact, the law is here to show you that you actually need someone to stand in your place and take on the curse because clearly you are unable to keep the law. You're transgressing it. The law came to show them that they were transgressing the law. Paul will also compare it to a mirror. The law is like a mirror. But you look into the mirror and you see that your face is filthy. And then you look at it, and now you have a choice. I can leave my filthy face, or I can go and wash my face. But what don't you do? You don't pick up the mirror, which has just reflected your dirty face, and rub it all over your face to try and clean your face. If the law is a mirror, you don't pick up the mirror and clean your face with it. It just reflects. It just shows you that you're dirty. But you don't use it to clean your face. Has anyone ever cleaned their face with it? That doesn't even make sense. How could you? Now, so the law was put into place to show you and show them that they were transgressing. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Get it? No, no one gets it. No one gets that verse. It is one of the most confusing verses in the entire New Testament. There's like 300 interpretations of verse 20 in Galatians chapter 3. Here's what I think. I had to write it down. The law was mediated, which means that man was a part of it. It's like this, the law. Remember, God gave the law to Moses. Moses then came and presented it to the people, and then the people then continued to add to it as they went along. But the promise of the Spirit came only from God directly, and there was no man involved, and so there was no mediator involved in that. The law was mediated part by man. 
plan and added to, but the promise of faith came directly from God. Does that make sense? Okay, it's going to be a discussion question. I'm just telling you. If you didn't write that down, come and see me later. Is the law then against the promise of God, Paul writes? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Was, you know, here, here's the thing, and this is, like the, I think, the best evidence. Jesus himself finds, him, finds himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he's going to be taken, right? And what does he pray to the Father? He's, he's sweating. Great drops of blood are coming down. He's so uh, praying so hard. And he says, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. In that moment, if there was any other way through which righteousness could come, don't you think that God would have spared his son from the torture that he was just about to go through? But did he? No. What's that mean? There was no other way. There was no law that could be established that would have determined or added to righteousness. <clears throat> I lost my place. 22. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, which kept for, for the faith, which would afterwards be revealed. In fact, what he's saying is you were being prepared for the one who was to come. This is how you kind of think about it. This is a little note that I wrote. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to Jesus, right? In the New Testament and beyond, we look back to Jesus. But what's the central, who's the central figure? Jesus. They looked forward to him coming. We look back to the fact that he came, but it all centers on Jesus and him coming. Therefore, it says that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Some of you might have in your book, uh, in your Bible, uh, schoolmaster, something like that. It's actually, the word here is actually um, escort. It's a, it's a very, very important difference because what it makes it sound like with tutor or schoolmaster is that the law was actually teaching you something, but the word is actually escort, which means that it just leads you to, okay? And the reason they use this word is because at that time, there was in many of the households someone whose job it was to take the kids by the hand and lead them to where the schools. They didn't do anything other than to lead them to where the knowledge was being given, that's what he says the law is. It was your escort to lead you to where the truth was. And where is that truth? The truth is you are not going to be able to keep this law. You are imperfect. There is only one who can do it, and that person is Christ. That's what Paul's message is right here. That's what he is reminding them of. The law was our tutor. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Well, that is a serious statement that Paul makes right there. And maybe you've just read over top of that before, but this is what he is saying. You are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So what does that imply? 
If you do not have faith in Jesus Christ, you are not a son of God. Woo! Try going out there and talking to folks that aren't believers and say, I know that you all think that we're, because we're created by God, we're all children of God, but that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that his children are those who believe in him. And when you say it like that, doesn't it actually make sense? Those who believe in who he is are his children. If you say, well, I don't believe in God, but I think we're all God's children. But, what? That doesn't even make sense. When you say it like that, it doesn't make sense. But, you know, be careful when you say that because you might get punched right in the nose if someone's like, we're all, we're all God's children. No, we're not. Maybe say it kinder than that. You know, we could talk later. He says that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are a son of God. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. This idea of put on Christ, you have to get this picture in your head. I know you're probably thinking it's like, like clothes. You put on clothes, right? You put on a coat, you put on pants, you put on a shirt. Not in that order, that'd be silly but you put clothes on, right? And then you're surrounded by it. But it actually is even more than that. In the original language, it means that you sink into those garments. Imagine you've got, I know it's Florida, but imagine you have like a big down coat, you know, and you put it on and, you're, and, you, put, and you just sink into it. And not, not just that it's covering you, but that it's comforting you and that it's holding you in. And that is the, the, these are the words that Paul uses right here that you have put on Christ. Not just that like you pull on a t-shirt and off you go. It's that you sink into the very garment of Christ so that he's covering you and holding you and, and comforting you. But that's much different. He says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There was, and this is very clever of Paul to talk, remember, because he's talking to Gentiles, but he's talking to Gentiles who've been influenced by some Jews that have come down. Uh, there was a typical prayer that would be prayed by, Jewish, prayed by Jewish men in the morning that would say, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Woo! I thank you I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was the prayer in the morning. Well, look at what he just says here. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Uh, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And Paul says all that, that, you, that, that pray, prayer that you pray, thanking God that you're not a, a Gentile or a, or a slave or a woman, he goes, in God's eyes, it doesn't matter. It's all, it's all wiped away. See, what Paul isn't saying is that they still have roles, right? Slaves at that time, workforce, they still had duties that they had to perform every single day. Um, men and women had different roles. Uh, that, that's not what Paul is saying, but he's saying when it comes to how you receive faith, it's the same. Everyone, everyone comes to faith the same way, through believing in Jesus Christ. It's the same. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It doesn't matter when it comes to how you receive faith. It is through Jesus. 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he goes on, he says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We're heirs according to the promise. That means that we're heirs because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And who can have a relationship with Jesus Christ? A Jew or a Greek, a slave or a free, a male or a female, everyone. Everyone can and must have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And by doing that, you are then an heir. You're a part of the family at that point. Seen the same in God's eyes. It was according to the promise. The promise that what? That God made to Abraham way back in the beginning. Way back. You see, this wasn't a change in plan somewhere along the way, but like, I know, I'm going to, I'm going to take Adam and Eve. I'm going to put them in the garden and it's all going to be good. Oh, man. They transgressed. They ate the fruit. All right, now I got to change it. Oh, man, they didn't follow the law. Now I got to send Jesus. Oh, man, it's all falling apart. No, it was God's plan. Faith in God from the beginning all the way through. Chapter four. (laughs) No, I'm not going to do that. Look, I don't know everybody here. I don't know everybody's heart. Um, but God certainly does. Uh, and he knows if you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I, don't, I don't really get, you know, I don't, I, I thought we were supposed to like do good works. I thought I was just supposed to like, if I'm good uh, and, I, and I do good, like if, if, if I, you know, I don't murder people. Yeah, if I don't, well, don't do that. But see, what, you know what Jesus, what Jesus said is, if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder. You say, well, you know, I'm a faithful husband. I've never, you know, I've never been unfaithful. That makes me good. Well, that, first of all, that just makes you not, not bad. It doesn't make you good. But also, Jesus says, if you've ever lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery already. And so Jesus is like, you understand? You cannot do enough good to make you good enough. And besides, how would you even know how much is good enough? How much is good enough? You cannot decide how much good is good enough by comparing yourself to someone else. Well, I'm better than Cesar. (laughs) It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I'm better than Cesar. (laughs) It's measured in inches. That's really what it is. It's measured in inches. It doesn't matter. You cannot be good enough. There was only one good enough. There was only one. And his name was Jesus. And he came and he died for you. For you. For, for all of you. And if you've, if you've received him, if you've repented of your sin, and you've asked him to become your Lord and Savior, then he has died for you and taken on your sin. But if you haven't, if you're saying, well, I'm gonna, I think I'm just going to try and go it on my own. I'm going to be good enough. I'm really good. I'm really, really good. Well, you have to be perfect. Since the day you were born until the day you die, and every minute of the day you have to be perfect. Anybody got that going? Anybody? Raise your hand. 
Do it. Because, I dare you. Raise your hand. Right? Because that would negate anything that you did that was ever perfect up to this point. You know, we've been talking about grace, and that is God saying, look, I'm going to give you something that you don't deserve. I'm going to give you an opportunity at paradise with me forever. Salvation. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make it available to you. You don't deserve it, but it's there because he's loving and he's gracious and he loves you and he wants you to spend eternity with him. So if you haven't done that, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, I need you to come and I need you to, to ask me about that and say, I, I don't know what I'm feeling right now, but I'm feeling something. A God is tugging at me somehow. And I don't know what that means. Please help me understand what that means, and I will talk to you, and we will pray, and you can ask God to forgive you of your sins, and you can accept him today before you go out the door, because you don't know what happens once you leave this room. You do not know. The Bible says that we are not promised tomorrow. So if you're thinking, I'll get around to it, one of these days, I'll get around to it. Maybe not. Why risk it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this morning, for this opportunity, Lord, for your word, for mostly, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, who came and died for me. Lord, he saved me. I've been born again. Lord, I thank you for that. What a precious, precious gift that I did not deserve. Lord, I pray right now for anyone that's sitting here that has never asked Jesus to come and live in their heart, to forgive them of their sins. Lord, I pray for that person right now. Lord, that you would just press in heavy on them. Lord, that you would just, uh, your Holy Spirit's presence would be encircling them saying, you need this, you need me. Lord, have them come up and pray with me so that they might leave here a new creation today. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us who do have a relationship with Jesus Christ but have let vanity get in the way of us thinking that we somehow have something to do with our own salvation, Lord, that it is through Jesus and the really great things that we do. Lord, forgive me for thinking that. Lord, for, thinking, for getting too caught up with my own reflection in the mirror, thinking that I'm something really awesome. You are awesome and only you are awesome. Lord, I know that there's a lot of hurt, physical and emotional right now going on in the world, Lord. And I know that the enemy is just trying to get into your church and divide it over silly things, Lord. Lord, please help us to bind ourselves to you and to each other. That we might stand strong, that we might hold each other up, that we might encourage one another, Lord. Lord, that we might fill our minds with the things that are lovely and pure and praiseworthy. That we might dwell on those things. As we go out of these doors from this safe place, Lord, and out into a world that just seems crazy right now. Lord, help us to be that light, that beacon that shines forth, that's different from everything that's going around us, that people would look at and say, I don't know what it is, but they've got something. I need that, because they do. 
And it's you, not us. Lord, I thank you so much as we go out here. Lord, I, I pray that this last song that we sing would be just an incredible blessing. Lord, as we, we have praised you and worshiped you with our song, with our prayer, with our study today, Lord, I pray that it will all be acceptable and beautiful to you. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.